E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Perrington, and I'm a policy scientist with the University of Delaware's Partnership for Public Education. I am joined today by Dr. Liz Farley-Ripple, the director of the partnership and faculty member in the School of Education. We've asked Dr. Brian Van Groningen to join us for the first episode of season two of the E4E podcast to talk about his recent work with colleagues Dr. Kobe Myers and Dr. Christopher Brandt on labeling and supporting underperforming schools and an article he co-authored with colleagues Maya Call and Dr. Nicole Simons on school principals' approaches to crisis management during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Van Groningen's overarching research focus is on organizational resilience and change management in K-12 schools with specific interest areas in school improvement efforts, the preparation of educational leaders, and educational policy analyses. His research has been published in journals such as the American Journal of Education, Educational Policy, Journal of Research on Leadership Education, Teachers College Record, Urban Education, and in practitioner outlets such as the federally funded Center on School Turnaround. States like Alabama, Indiana, and Utah have incorporated his work on school improvement planning into their theories of action and support for underperforming schools. Thank you for joining us today, Brian, and thank you, Liz, for being part of this discussion, as I know school improvement and evidence-based improvement are close to your heart, too. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks again. Brian, your recent research with Dr. Kobe Myers at the University of Virginia and Dr. Christopher Brandt at the Center for Assessment looked at how states support schools that have been labeled underperforming. What motivated you and your colleagues to study this issue, and why is it important to look at this issue? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So when I first started my doctoral work at the University of Virginia, Dr. Kobe Myers and I formed an early research collaboration that investigated the use of third-party vendors with respect to school improvement. And one of the major findings that we learned that supports prior research is that state departments of education use a lot of third-party vendors, either because they don't have the capacity, they don't have the ability, or they don't have the authority or the will to be able to do the school improvement work themselves. And so that led us down really what's been a six and a half year research agenda to get some more information about state departments of education, the use of third party vendors for school improvement, and then the supports that states themselves instead of the vendors might offer to their underperforming schools. And with the recent passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, adding districts to that mix as well. So now the states are responsible for not only devising approaches and supports for schools, but also districts. And so that initial motivation of us seeing just how few states take the lead on supporting their underperforming schools and districts has led us to where we are today with a series of papers on the capacity of state departments of education, how states label and unlabel their underperforming schools, and then how those schools are supported when they are quote unquote in labeled status. Why do we label schools and what is the history behind school labeling? So that's a great question. I think one of the things that comes to mind is going back to the No Child Left Behind Act that was passed in 2001 and signed in 2002. 
And that introduced terms like corrective action and restructuring. And so schools that persistently underperformed by law were then the recipients of these kinds of federal labels, corrective action, and then schools in restructuring. And then when the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was passed, the large stimulus bill in the late aughts during the first term of the Obama administration, you saw two more terms be introduced, focus school and priority school. So focus schools were the bottom 10% of schools in a state that were low performing, and then priority schools were the bottom 5%. And so a lot of the intervention monies that the stimulus bill allocated were targeted towards priority schools. And so ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, changed those labels of focus and priority to comprehensive support and improvement, CSI, that's the bottom 5%, and then targeted support and improvement, which is the former label of focus school, which is the bottom 10%. And so those are the two labels that ESSA uses, comprehensive support, CSI, targeted support, TSI. And so one of the studies that we did here was take a look at how states went about assigning the characteristics and the formulas or the indices that they used to get to that bottom 5% or that bottom 10%. And one of the key markers over time since NCLB's passage in the early 2000s has been trying to diversify the indicators or the markers that states use. Initially, it was simply student proficiency scores on English language arts and mathematics standardized tests. NCLB instituted a pilot differentiated accountability program in the late aughts that encouraged some states to diversify their accountability identification indicators. So you've seen graduation rates be used, you've seen student growth in proficiency used as opposed to just composite student proficiency. And then ESSA introduced what's called a school quality marker or called the fifth indicator. And so states were permitted to devise any kind of marker they wanted to, that they wanted in concert with those other markers to be able to identify those bottom 10% and then those bottom 5% of underperforming schools in their states. So what are those criteria that they're using, Brian? One of the things we were surprised about is that despite the flexibility that ESSA allegedly introduced for states to come up with different indicators, the vast majority of states were still focused on improving student achievement via test scores. That was still the primary indicator. So I think not much has changed from what we've seen between the criteria initially that NCLB introduced in the early 2000s and what ESSA was intended to try to refute when it was passed in 2015. So that sort of begs the question, what are states doing to help these schools get out from under those labels, right? So we've known from the past 20 or so years now that schools that are struggling often need a wide range of supports, right? Now we have comprehensive and targeted. What are states doing? Great question. So the role differs, but state, as I'm sure is unsurprising, given the fact that the United States has a decentralized nature to its education system. The role or the responsibilities expected of state education agencies or state departments of education has increased, as you mentioned, over the last 20 years. And so now state education agencies are responsible for developing curriculum standards, developing educator evaluation programs, devising supports for underperforming schools and districts, and then tracking through longitudinal data systems, the performance of their students and their educators over time. And based on our research and the very little research that's been out there about State Departments of Education, 
one of the things that we see is that very few states really have the capacity to be able to do all of this work because they still are sort of in this mode of monitoring compliance with federal dollars through the Title I program. So that evolution in role for some states has been particularly difficult. For the specific supports they offer, it's ranged from providing their own personnel as coaches or as regional support coordinators that principals and other leaders of CSI and TSI schools can reach out to. As schools continue to persist with underperformance, some states have increased the intensity of that coaching or of the number of personnel who are assigned to certain schools. You've seen other states that have created what are called takeover districts, where the State Department itself has taken over certain schools in different parts of the state. And you have other states that have then said, well, you're not going to be able to manage your own school, but the state doesn't have the capacity. So we're going to assign that to a charter management organization or an educational management organization, a CMO or an EMO, and they're going to be the ones to support. And then we will offer supports to the CMO and the EMO, depending on who's been assigned to do that work. So it's ranged from those kinds of supports, takeover, offering personnel, support with, say, school improvement planning versus other states that have remained fervently under this umbrella of local control. And they have deliberately chosen, whether it's through their own devices or not, if the state legislature, for instance, has granted them authority to not get involved in specific efforts to improve underperforming schools and districts. So the state will identify those schools, those CSI and those TSI schools, but then the locus of responsibility for improvement is on the specific leaders and officials in those schools and in those districts. And the State Department of Education has very little, if any, involvement in those support efforts. So, Brian, one of the reasons I was really excited to be part of this conversation today is because, as you know, I'm sort of really interested in how evidence gets taken up in policy and practice, right? And under No Child Left Behind, there was immense pressure to use research and evaluation as well as data to inform school improvement. And ESSA sort of doubled down on that by creating tiers of evidence and saying that these schools under TSI and CSI really needed to be using evidence-based programs and practices in order to get the funding they needed for school improvement. How does that play out at the state level? Do we see states engaging with evidence in the same way, or is it, is it different? So one thing, actually, Liz, that comes to mind is this idea of evidence use, even in these plans that states had to develop in response to the Every Student Succeeds Act. So states had to write plans that typically ranged from, say, 70 pages to 200 pages And they had to articulate different kinds of narratives and descriptions for an array of topics. And one of those was a specific description about how they intended to support their CSI schools in particular. And in our review of plans, any notion of evidence in that description of the approach to identifying and supporting underperforming schools. And so while there are some of those examples that you mentioned, and Massachusetts comes to mind, of a state that has really invested since the mid to late 1990s in beefing up its own capacity and then creating, as you just mentioned, a separate research and evaluation arm for the state's efforts, we were a little surprised and in some cases saddened that so few states included any notion of evidence. And we were thoroughly surprised because the Every Student Succeeds Act prompted states, especially for their approaches to improving underperforming schools and districts, to use evidence. 
So I think on one hand, it's a time and a resource issue. But on the other hand, they tend to consult sources that are predominantly not empirical journals. And so that raises a question about all of the research that is done on school improvement, the extent to which that's translated into digestible documents or published in other outlets for State Department of Education officials to access, especially if they don't have journal subscriptions. Yeah, I see the same sorts of patterns in the work that I do at district and school level decision making, right? So perpetually time, resources, individual capacity, right? And then do you have access to the kinds of information that you need? Is that part of the resources that you're able to get to that you're familiar with, right? And so I think that's interesting that it plays out the same way at state departments. I do know, though, from our work that state departments of education, or at least several state education agencies, have really robust research and evaluation and data-related units. And so I know that there's been some really remarkable resources put together at the state level to sort of guide schools and districts in terms of what are some evidence-based programs and practices. At At a recent event that we hosted, we had the Pennsylvania example of that database was shared with us. It was really impressive, right, to see how folks can drill down into the kinds of issues they might be facing as a TSI or CSI school and think about how that works. What I think was also really nice about that particular example in Pennsylvania was that they sort of aligned the resources to their framework for accountability, right? Which goes back to the point you mentioned earlier, right, about what are the criteria for identifying these schools, right? And making sure that if we're going to be trying to improve them, we want to be suggesting strategies that are aligned to the criteria by which those schools are evaluated, right? The school quality criteria. So I think that's a really great thing to learn here. Thank you for sharing that. Brian, it seems like evidence use is a challenge in developing school improvement plans, but in your work, you find some other patterns in how states support improvement. I'm specifically thinking about incremental change, that they make minor rather than bold improvements. Why is that? And what do you think we need in order to take on more ambitious improvement efforts? So one qualm of this podcast is that we only have about an hour. And so that answer to the question would take about four days, I think, to really give it treatment. But so my immediate reaction to that question is that State Departments of Education, on average, still have significant capacity issues. And in some other states, they are legally restricted from trying to engage in some of the work that we expect of them now whether it's creation of standards, evaluation systems, support systems, et cetera. So in that case, for those states, it's through no fault of their own that they have limited jurisdiction and ability to be able to come up with some approaches. But I think with the way that we framed this paper was really comparing the supports that states reported to offer in the early NCLB era with what they espoused in their Every Student Succeeds Act, a difference of about 14 years. And we really found very little difference in the kinds of supports. So a lot of it's still centered on school improvement planning and the evidence based on school improvement planning, despite being required in a number of states and by the federal government for underperforming schools. I think I can count the number of empirical research studies that have examined the process on two or three hands. So despite the prevalence of the process and despite the mandates and the continued mandates, 
there's very little evidence or research to support that the planning process actually works. Now, intuitively, you would say the planning process is a good thing because what kind of organization wouldn't want to plan? But if principals and other school leaders and now district leaders who are involved in improvement efforts only have so many working hours in a given week, and you're requiring them to spend time drafting an improvement plan, how can you better leverage that strategy and better use their time if you're still going to require something like that? Did you see any practices that you thought were promising or might support meaningful change in these schools? Now, one thing that we did see change is the inclusion of root cause analyses. So a school or a district identifies two or three goals in one of these plans, But there's now some expectation about the rationale for that goal selection and further identifying what are some contributing factors through a root cause analysis exercise or going out to collect some data through a needs assessment process to actually be more intentional and contextual with the kinds of goals that you would then select for the plan and then the resulting action steps that you would suggest you would take to try to meet those goals. I think another change that we saw between NCLB and ESSA is a focus on family and community engagement and the presence and the drive towards equity, equitable outcomes, and for equitable learning opportunities that hopefully would result in better experiences for kids and educators. And that's something that ESSA prompted in some respects, but Before the U.S. Department of Education would approve any plan that a state submitted, the state had to describe and demonstrate that it went out to its constituents to shop around its approaches that they put in the plan. And I think that that kind of action provided some semblance of modeling that is expected for schools and districts to be able to engage their communities. I think that that is probably a piece of the strategy moving forward that needs a lot of work because Schools and districts typically don't involve their communities to the degree that they might be able to, but the vast majority of supports still remained around improvement planning and around professional development, which is more of the same. And as we label in the paper, long live the status quo. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And as you were talking, I'm thinking back to sort of where we started this conversation, which was around the labeling of schools, right? And then talking about how you get out from under those labels, right? Which is School improvement, writ large, right? We're talking about school improvement. So there seems like there's two pieces here. So one, how do states support schools and districts in doing that? And they are stretched in, they are in their capacity, and the suggestions they have are sort of, as you said, long live the status quo, right? And that's for various reasons. I'm not begrudging our our state education agency friends anything there. But there's an opportunity to think about doing things different. And then at the district and school level, but even with the support of the state, is that planning process and how we make that a good use of people's time, right? So I heard you say root cause analysis, and that actually rings true with me. In some of our work, we have noticed challenges with identifying theory of action behind school improvement plan. Like, so what is the actual challenge you're trying to address? What is really causing that challenge? How are you going to address the underlying cause? So really a good use of time then for our school leaders, for our district leaders, and for our state leaders is to really dig down into that root cause, that theory of action, that kind of work. Another piece, as you just mentioned, is engaging stakeholders, right? If we're serious about our commitments to equity, serious about our commitments to change, that has to be a more central piece. So that's like positive, right? We see these two changes. What we also noted was a little bit at all levels and for a variety of reasons. 
And so I think there's an opportunity to strengthen that. As I mentioned, some states are doing that pretty well. So we can point to some of those examples. But also, as you mentioned, we don't have a lot of good evidence about these system-wide changes, right? There's not a lot of evidence for state departments to look at and be like, how do I drive statewide improvement? And how do I work effectively to support district? And even at the school level, right? School improvement research sort of maybe looks at pieces or a strategy or, or something, right? But there's not a ton of at least available evidence for So can we change that? Yeah, so you raise a number of good points, Liz, and I think one of the first things that comes to mind is, as a larger society, the expectations that we have of schools. The way that I've seen it divided is between within-school factors and out-of-school factors, and I think schools are oftentimes held to solving and addressing out-of-school factors that they have little control over, so something like poverty, for instance, or access to health care or access to other kinds of community resources. And we expect the school to potentially be able to remedy this under that original notion of schools being the quote unquote great equalizer when that's not possible. And so I think that's one of the first pieces is really zeroing in on promoting this focus on within school factors. So things related to instruction, professional learning, the systems and structures at the district level and how those systems and structures potentially set up the conditions for school level leaders to be able to succeed. I think a second piece that you mentioned that I find particularly fascinating is this idea of a theory of action. And that typically is what the improvement planning process would produce, but the improvement planning process is still viewed as this sort of compliance exercise that the state government or the federal government requires breakthrough principles, if you will, where they say, I have these conditions that are likely not going to change for the foreseeable future. So of the levers and mandates that I have to contend with, how can I best reframe and then reuse those levers and mandates so that they fulfill both of these purposes? Brian, you brought up the idea of breakthrough principles as an example of innovative leadership. I know you recently authored a paper with Dr. Nicole Simons and Maya Call on principles approaches to managing pandemic-related crises. Could you speak more about the responses of school principals during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, so I appreciate you highlighting that work. So when the pandemic really picked up steam in March and April of 2020, there was a group of researchers that started to say, we should really chronicle this and go out and talk to leaders because this is really a once in a generation kind of event. And I was invited to join that research consortium. And so our team of about 18 people went out to talk to almost 175 principles between April 2020 and July 2020. And the findings that we focused on in this particular brief were around how did principles respond? And we aligned it with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is that principles focus first on those physical and those psychological pieces. And then once they had those in place, they started to attend to other things like instruction or operations or whatever it might be. And so there's implications, we think, from that work. And I'll start with policy. Because of that intense focus on relationships and on the social and emotional well-being of students and teachers and other staff members, I think it really butts up against the kinds of criteria that states and the federal government have identified are things that we should use to measure schools and their performance. And so these principles really, in the grand scheme of things, did not prioritize or give one wit in some cases 
about the quality of instruction in those first couple weeks because they were trying to identify, is this student safe? Do they have housing? Are they experiencing homelessness? Are they able to have the family that they stay with or live with pay rent or pay a mortgage? And the notion of curriculum standards and all that just sort of fell by the wayside. And I think it demonstrated that schools are very much community and social organizations as opposed to these accountability factories. I think it demonstrates how easy it would be for us to say there could be another way to do this to identify what the purpose of schools could be, and then how we could develop measures to see which schools are succeeding around those indicators and which ones aren't. And right now, the systems that we have in place don't really seem to give much attribute or credit or privilege to the idea that we should also care about social and emotional well-being of students, educators, and other community members who might be involved in schools. I think a second implication for policy is around flexibility and decision-making. And I think one of the most critical things that I've seen with respect to how principals contended with the work was with the role of school districts. And we've seen a number of school districts that really have mishandled the pandemic with a lack of communication or leadership structures that simply just were not equipped to be able to handle something like this. And again, I understand that it's a once in a generation event, But I think policy-wise, it really raises the attention towards school districts and how school districts structure themselves. And I'd say my first implication for practice is principals really leaning into this idea of a caring approach as opposed to simply trying to get the management or the operations done and put out all the fires. And I think a second implication for practice would be school leaders creating an environment where consensus-driven decision-making is the norm. It's one thing to involve staff members or community members or students at the table. It's another thing for those same individuals when they have a seat at the table to actually have influence over the decision. I think that's fascinating. And I'm really incredibly grateful that you and your colleagues were able to jump in and take on some of these issues and questions so quickly because our group Partnership for Public Education works closely with folks at school district and state level and just the volume of needs and the shifts that had to happen over such a short period of time, right? Like our favorite word, pivot, right? Everyone had to pivot so quickly to figuring out what was really important and what needed to be handled. And I really appreciate you sharing that on this episode today, because this is exactly what I think folks in schools need. And actually, one thing I'll recommend is to visit the policy briefs page at the University of Pennsylvania, which I think we can attach as a link, because we did a whole series of briefs on all of the data that we collected. There are some fascinating things to learn, not only about how principals initially responded, but particularly the role of the school district. I think that the pandemic has really shed light on that organizational actor in the education space being a very key player in creating conditions for not only district-level leaders to succeed, but their school-level leaders in particular. Okay. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I just do want to ask, is there anything that you'd like to add about these ideas before we end our discussion? Yeah. First of all, I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate the highlighting of the work. And I guess I'll build backward from what we've talked about during this particular episode. And that's this idea that Principals and other educators at the school level in particular had to flex when the pandemic first started, and they continue to flex as we toggle between remote environments, hybrid environments, in-person environments. 
And so what principals chose to focus on based on what we found, I think really challenges the kind of findings that we did in these two papers with respect to how we identify underperforming schools and districts and then how those schools and districts are supported. I think the vast majority of approaches that we see are still rooted in this older technocratic aspect of school improvement. And that if we only had the right people and the right structures that are in place, then we should see magical success. And I think if anything, what this all demonstrates is the sheer complexity of the landscape and all of the different players and actors that can create conditions that enable school leaders to be able to do a better job or that hinder school leaders from doing a better job. But I think the dimensions we continue to use in privilege, we're just so used to them because this is the way it's been done since the late 1970s. We've always measured test scores. And I think that if anything, over the last 18 months, it's demonstrated that schools are places that are much more than test scores and producing student proficiency outcomes. Schools are places of community. Schools are places of robust engagement. And schools are places where educators need the environment to be able to be creative in the ways that they support their students to promote equitable learning opportunities for all kinds of students. And right now, I don't think our policies really do that. And so there's considerable room for growth. And I think our future research that we have planned with our state departments of education are hopefully going to shed some light on what are those barriers that are preventing some states in particular from realizing these different ways that we could think about identifying and supporting schools that need our help the most. Brian, we appreciate you taking the time to share your work and that of your colleagues. We'll link Dr. Brian Van Groningen's papers to our podcast website, so please check out the links to learn more about his work in this area. I'd also like to thank Dr. Liz Farley-Ripple for joining us in this conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu backslash PPE.